Hi, my name's Noreen Jamil, and this is... Emily Kate Stevens. Both of us have been diagnosed with long COVID. And we've created this podcast dedicated to the condition. Welcome to the Long COVID Sessions. So, how was your week? Not bad, actually. I'm not... I'm feeling good. Good, yeah. <laughs> Great. Um, yeah, I don't have really very many symptoms. I don't have the palpitations. I have the tachycardia only if I overexert myself. My only symptom at the moment is absolute terrible sleep pattern. I'll sleep for 40 minutes and I'll wake up thinking I've slept for three hours. And literally it will, <laughs> it will have been 40 minutes. And that goes on all night, which is really debilitating. And I'm sure I'm going to head for a crash because that's been going on for about three, four days now. And I'm having these really apocalyptic dreams where it's the end of the world and I'm, you know, I'm in survival mode. So it's quite entertaining. (laughs) Sounds quite hectic. It is hectic. That's probably why I'm waking up. But uh, no, otherwise, health-wise, my hands are extremely warm at the moment. Uncomfortably so. That's really it. You had that at the beginning as well, didn't you? Yeah, I had a lot of burning hands and feet. It's just my hands. So, Emily, by the sounds of it, your voice is so much better. But does that mean you're feeling better? <laughs> yeah, I do have to apologise for the croakiness in in the interview. You did um, sound like you were on death's door, to be honest. <laughs> I felt absolutely shocking last week. But actually coming out of the other side of that, I had, I've actually had a few, a few good days. Not necessarily 100% normal, but days where I felt a little bit more like myself and that's been really really nice uh this week I've been feeling allergic I've started back on the antihistamines because my skin's a a mess again and I've got that constriction in my throat and things like that again but you know I used to be allergic before I had long COVID it it's just that I think I react to so many more things now well I'm glad you're feeling better and I'm glad you've had some good days as well those make it all worthwhile I think Oh, it's just nice to have that reminder, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I managed to buy a tree, pull a tree into the house, trim it. And I mean, not trim it with ornaments, trim it because it was a literal bush. (laughs) The fattest tree in the world. And I did it on my own and I, you know, I'm fine. Good. Yeah. We just have to take these small wins. Um, And you know what? One thing is um, speaking to... For example, this week's guest, Noreen, we are actually so lucky compared to some of the people out there. Like, I know we have bad days and I know we have bad periods of time, but we are still relatively able to function. And I am incredibly grateful for that. Yeah, I agree. I always caveat when people ask me how I are. Well, you know, how are you? And I'm like, well, I'm okay, But, you know, I'm luckier than most. Yeah. And this is sufficiently debilitating, but we are luckier than some. Luckier than this week's guest, who really, at the worst of his illness, the disability caused by long COVID was so extreme. Yes, I mean, he talks about not being able to sit for very long, which sounds... I mean, you're bed-bound, basically, yeah, aren't you? Yeah, completely bed-bound. Dr. Asad Khan is a respiratory consultant, but we speak to him about his long COVID experience. And he's actually gone to quite extreme lengths to try and get well. Yes, so he is in Mulheim in Germany undergoing this help apheresis therapy, 
that we referred to in our interview with Professor Pretorius a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, we should just say right at the top of this, it is repeated in the interview, this is an experimental therapy. There's been no proven research to say that this is actually helping yet. So, yeah, before you all book your tickets to Mulheim, listen right to the end of the interview. So, Dr. Khan, can you just tell us a little bit about your COVID, long COVID journey? Certainly. I was working as a consultant with British Physician on the front line in Manchester throughout the first peak and through the first half of the second peak, which was when I fell ill. I acquired COVID from work, having done a full week on an acute COVID respiratory ward. People all around me were falling sick with COVID. Kind of long story short, in my department, a lot of people got COVID and recovered. I never did. Was there a lag? Did you feel well and then feel ill again? Because that's what happened to me. Or did you just continue to feel unwell? That did happen to me, actually. I got acute COVID. And I remember the exact date. And it's only just passed my covid Uh Never to be forgotten. 21st of November, 2020, 10.35am. I had my first symptom. I felt a bit lightheaded, generally unwell, had a low-grade temperature, and had achy muscles. And for, for want of a better term, I just felt a bit off. Nothing spectacular. I had a miserable month, which I think most of us had. You know, you're in bed, you're sleepy, uh, you don't like your food and uh, just feel really weak and miserable. But, you know, it was really like a very, very bad flu, like the worst flu I'd ever had. But you weren't hospitalised? No, not during that period. And I actually found that the fatigue improved to the extent that Christmas week I did manage to return to work. It was very light work. It was two hours a day doing some desk work uh, for three days. And... uh, remember it was the 28th of December when it felt like a bomb had gone off inside my body. That's the only way I can describe it. Uh, So I started with um, a sensation of heat and my heart was racing, heart rate was about 150, 160. Rashes came out, had really bad urticaria and going to the toilet past urine a lot. It um, really, really burnt. Um, and that remained a feature for quite a while. And over the next couple of days, new, new things evolved. So I found myself reacting to foods that I hadn't reacted to before. And I started developing chest pain and breathlessness. My oxygen saturations fell too. So I thought, mm, something's not quite right here. So I did end up in hospital very briefly. And, and they were as sorry as they could be at the time, I guess. But, you know, as we know, pe- people's usual tests are normal in this condition a lot of the time. So I, I went home and the urticaria just would not settle. And I cannot describe how awful it was. Uh, because it was itchy. It was itchy, it was burning, it, and um, the the eyelids were swollen and they shut. And no amount of histamine blockade would work. 
ended up on sort of more than four or five times recommended doses. Both Noreen and I have throughout had things that basically feel like a real allergic reaction. I have it a lot in my skin. Um, yeah. And a lot of it, the time it seems to be triggered by foods that didn't trigger it previously. Yeah, But yeah, it, yeah. It, it's like a sudden histamine overload in your body. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, um, looking back, it was probably MCAS. Um, and the more I read about the condition, the more I thought, and that sounds like me, because I did have a background of hay fever and what probably was interstitial cystitis as well. But the dots just hadn't been joined by anyone. Yeah. I had to join them, and I'm sure that will ring familiar. A lot of people have had to make their own diagnoses and find their own treatments. And uh, the urticaria required immunosuppression in the end. Uh, so I had a course of uh, monoclonal antibodies, which was one injection every six months, and then it settled down. The, the funny thing was that I was actually gradually starting to get better uh, between December and February. Uh, so the fatigue was improving. I didn't actually have post-exertion malaise at that point. Yeah. I was able to actually go to the children's school and walk them home on a couple of occasions. And I thought, oh, okay, you know, I should be back at work before long. And uh, then, and I want to preface this by saying that I am very pro-vax and obviously it would be irresponsible not to be, uh, given the huge benefits of vaccines. But one of the rules that we were taught was that you do not vaccinate sick people. You know, if your child's got a temperature, you 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 don't. Um, but we were not under a lot of pressure, understandably, to get the vaccine so that we could get back to work. So there was this worry about reinfection as well. So I had the vaccine and uh, it was literally within hours that I developed very severe POTS and, uh, and PEM, both of which I, at the time, didn't realise the nature of. That was when I started spending most of my day in bed. Apart from a few brief periods where there were temporary improvements, it sort of remained like that. I mean, it certainly was housebound um, until I got to Germany for proper treatment in September. Um, but uh, I was certainly in the last month of my illness, I was bedbound. And I was uh, actually intolerant of light and sound um, and uh, couldn't even stand the presence of the children in the room. And I um, was rapidly losing weight because um, I was just unable to eat or drink, sometimes, you know, for several days at a time because of the constant nausea that you can get with POTS. Yeah. So were you then able to kind of seek medical care for POTS? So the story with me has been basically um, developing a problem, figuring mm -hmm. it out where it was, and then going to the right person. Right. That has been the only way I've been able to get any meaningful care. Uh, my GP is excellent uh, in terms of uh, the fact that she's very empathetic and she listens and is willing to take on board my thoughts and ideas about my illness. And she accepts fully that I know more about this condition than uh, most doctors would. But I know that not everybody is that fortunate. Um, and uh, if I had gone through the conventional route of being referred to a hospital specialist, I think I would probably still have been waiting for a diagnosis. So unfortunately, what I've had to do uh, is use my knowledge of the system and my contacts to 
get to the right person for each condition that I diagnose myself with. And that was something that we were taught never to do. But I think long COVID has just turned that on its head where patients are more knowledgeable than than the clinicians. We're not medical professionals and I go to the GP and I know that I know more about the condition than than the GP. And that's not an overt criticism of the GP because they don't have the lived experience. But I do feel that there must be some way of trying to collate the information from the long COVID patients so that we can have a slightly improved system from the way it is currently. Yes, and um, that is something that we have been trying to do as well, where a group of 33 doctors got together and wrote what is now called the Delphi Guideline on how to manage long COVID. Because we recognise that for a lot of the conditions, such as POTS, MCAS, etc., there wasn't a lot of randomised controlled trial-based evidence, but there was lived experience and there was expert opinion. And I was one of the contributors, although not one of the main authors, and we had great difficulty getting that published. That came out in August, did it? Was it yes, in August? yes. Yeah, we read yes, that. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and it's basically what we'd learned about the illness for our own experiences and that of uh, people that we were in contact with who also had the condition. Uh, and it was very pragmatic because we recognised that there was an evidence vacuum and we were trying to fill that. But if you look at the guidance that was initially put out by, for example, let's say NICE. I mean, it was completely useless. And that's been kind. So what then led you to the idea of microclots? And did you discover microclots first? Or what symptoms did you feel in your body that could be down to microclots? I was at that point in September where I would have tried anything. Because I just wanted to avoid a life in bed. And the only reason I kept going was because I paced aggressively. And for me, pacing involved lying down every 15, 20 minutes um, and sleeping and aggressively doing meditation and breath work just to keep the vagus and, you know, active and keep the sympathetic under control. And I became aware of the work of Dr. Beata Jaeger in Mulheim in Germany, which is where I'm at at the moment. I've just had my 12th apheresis this morning. And uh, anecdotally, at least, it seemed that a lot of patients were benefiting. And uh, I thought that, you know, even a 10, 20% improvement in in that condition uh, would be, you know, uh, would be tremendous. So... I was on the list for uh, for help apheresis and Dr. Jaeger called me one evening and said, I want you over here as soon as possible because you're very sick. So I made arrangements. I couldn't travel alone. I had to have the help of my brother-in-law. Uh, so I, I had to use wheelchair assistance uh, to, to get to Germany. Uh, on the plane. And I remember at the time thinking, how am I going to sit upright for an hour on that plane? Uh, Just the thought of that filled me with dread. I got here and I remember fainting in Dr. Yeager's clinic, sitting down, which is quite spectacular and unusual. Um, But uh, she 
with little delay, plugged me into an aphoresis machine. And uh, I have improved significantly since then. And then I wanted to know what was what was happening inside the body, what was making me better. And it became quite clear that the machine was filtering out a lot of fibrin. You can see it with your eye. And it, it collects in a cylinder because they separate out the red blood cells from the plasma. And the plasma is run over a filter, which precipitates the excess clot material, which is fibrin. And I had loads of it. In fact, my blood was really thick and difficult to draw back. And it was black in color. And the oxygen level in venous blood was 32%. It should lie between 65 and 80 for an adult. So I thought, hmm, clearly my tissues are very hungry for oxygen, which is why they're extracting this oxygen from the blood. So that by the time it passes through the organs and gets to the veins, there's very little left. I became aware of the work of Professor Pretorius, whom you interviewed some weeks ago. And it just suddenly all clicked into place. It just all made sense uh, that I and probably the majority of long COVID sufferers have these clots, which are triggered by the virus, uh, more specifically the S1 part of the spike protein. And these clots cause reduction in blood supply to different parts of the body. Now, can I just ask, were there any tests that you had previously, blood tests, that at the time they weren't particularly remarkable? Was there anything that in hindsight you can see in those tests might have indicated that you had some kind of clotting process going on? In the blood. So not on the investigations that are typically done for clotting, such as D-dimer or fibrinogen. However, my blood was always very difficult to um, uh, to sample. And that had only started after I developed long COVID. And it was dark. And that hadn't been the case before I became ill. So I remember the phlebotomists and nurses often saying, oh, you know, look at how thick your blood is. But... You know, that was as far as it ever went. I wasn't aware of the microclots at that point myself. So no, there was nothing. Until I actually saw the fibrin in the filter and the nurses in Germany pulled two big clots out of my forearm veins, pictures of which I think a lot of the world has seen. And then that is when it all became very real for me. I've since then had further cycles of apheresis. And like I said, today was my 12th. And I'm on anticoagulation now. And I am much, much better. I mean, I can walk short distances, which for me, two months ago, would have been unimaginable. I can think clearly, although I still have quite significant short-term memory problems. And I no longer have that sense of the life just being sucked out of me on the slightest of effort. I feel like, and this is the only way I can describe it, like there is now space inside my chest and inside my head where it must have been clogged with all this sticky, thick blood that was struggling to circulate around. So it has been, it has been quite remarkable. It's fascinating. I'm so glad you're feeling better. But for me, this treatment is experimental, right? What led you from, from the UK, from from Manchester 
to get on a plane to Germany, what did Dr. Jaeger say would happen? And did she know what was causing? Yes. See, that's the gap there. Like you had no test to say, oh, I need to have yes. the apheresis. Yes. You had no, no other indication why you should get on the plane. Yes. What made you do it? What evidence or what? You know, you're a doctor. So what? Mm. You, I mean, it's not a cheap. No, not at all. Not at all. And um, Can we just uh, explain to our listeners that it is personally costing you money to yes. go there? It is, it is, actually. And I have paid for every treatment here. Dr. Jaeger noticed that a lot of people with long COVID weren't getting better. Now, she has been involved in using help apheresis to treat people with hyperlipidemia, so high cholesterol, for quite a number of years, which basically filters out the excess cholesterol, um, thereby improving the health of patients with, say, for example, cardiac illness or even post-cardiac transplant patients. Because heparin binds to the spike protein, and because heparin is used in the process of help apheresis, she thought, and this is before the microclots literature was published, that hypothetically putting long COVID patients um, on a help apheresis machine would help bind the virus and remove it. That was her original hypothesis. But then when they started seeing this clot material in the filters, and then obviously Professor Pretorius published a microclots, it became clear that it wasn't actually the virus itself. It was the result of the virus, it was the clots. So when I had the conversation with Dr. Yeager over the phone, and she explained that that was what was happening, I thought, yeah, okay, well, if my body's full of clots, no wonder uh, everything, you know, the, the skin, the brain, the heart, the nerves, everything just feels starved of oxygen and nutrients. Um, because, as you know, the effects of long COVID are global uh, in terms of how it affects your body. There's no one particular body part that it affects. Uh, and it just made sense. I think initially there were small improvements, but then through discussions with colleagues in South Africa who have been using anticoagulation, on patients in long COVID, through their experience, it became clear that what you need really is a multi-pronged approach, which I think Professor Pretorius alluded to, because the problem is multifold. I just wanted to kind of maybe, for, for the benefit of your listeners, illustrate what actually is going on. So you have the virus invade your body, and the virus directly invades the endothelium, which is the inner lining of the blood vessels. It also triggers a number of other things. So it causes activation of platelets and it causes production of large amounts of clotting factors, most prominently one called von Willebrand factor. So you get production of clot and you also get these platelets, which are very, very activated. The reason that the clot production doesn't stop is because the fibrin itself is pro-inflammatory. So clot actually gives rise to more clot. And every time you expose your body to stress, be it physical or mental or psychological, you're actually going to produce more clot, which is why resting and pacing is really, really important. Is that to do with adrenaline surge or...? Uh... Absolutely. So, um, you know, if, if you are 
in, in a state of sympathetic overdrive. That is a pro-inflammatory state, and and that will um, that will make sense in that it it leads to further clot production. The problem is even with the apheresis, how do you stop your body from reproducing the clot? How do we get rid of what the virus has infiltrated into the endothelium to stop this being an ongoing process? So so the endothelium um, is constantly being shed. What we're seeing now is the result of a vicious cycle where clot has been produced and is stimulating the production of more clot. And until you remove the clot uh, and get rid of the noise that it's causing, um, the body is not going to heal. The endothelium is not going to settle. So it's really, really important to remove the clot through anticoagulation plus minus apheresis and prevent the formation of new clot. I know that this question keeps coming up about viral persistence and do we still harbour the virus and is that what's triggering the, the clots? We don't know the answer to that for sure and it is a question that does need to be answered. I don't think there is any good evidence so to date to say that there definitely is viral persistence and the experience from Dr. Yeager's clinic and also from South Africa where they have used anticoagulation and have been using it for a while, is that once you remove the clot and once the endothelium settles down and you do it properly using multiple drugs, then the problem doesn't seem to recur. Now, it may be that there is a subset of patients where antibodies may be playing a part. The viral invasion, the spike protein, does give rise to antibodies, but not in the way that we conventionally think where it gives rise to one antibody or two that cause the illness. It actually stimulates an indiscriminate shower of antibodies, which attack different parts of the body. And in my case, it was the skin. So I had very high levels of IgE. And when the clot's removed, it may be that there is a subset of people where you have to then target that particular antibody if it's what we call a rogue clone of antibodies that isn't settling down. But it does appear that in the majority of people, proper anticoagulation, and in Dr. Yeager's clinic's case, the apheresis does, does help. But you believe that you need to have both of them together. I mean, you definitely need the anticoagulation. There's no doubt about that. Um, I guess the good news is that with the combined three drugs, what seems to be happening is that people are not needing big numbers of cycles. Of the the apheresis? Yes. When I started, it was quite common for people to need sort of eight, nine, ten cycles. Uh, But, um, you know, I've had my 12th and, and... you know, that is obviously a lot. However, the anticoagulation is definitely making the apheresis more effective. Can I just ask how you feel immediately following the apheresis? It's not an entirely safe process, I, I don't believe. But do you immediately feel different after it? So in terms of safety, there haven't been any um, significant um, adverse effects to the degree that you'd expect in a procedure that's been carried out for, you know, well over 30 years. You do feel, um, the only way I can describe it is cleansed. Immediately. Yes, yes. Um, um, but then it is, it is, you know, it is an involved treatment, it's intense. So 
you know, your blood is being taken out and being moved around the machine and put back in. So I did have well, what I can only describe as PEM following the first few cycles. I would crash and then I would recover uh, and I'd have a week between cycles. Um, and then each time I got a bit better. But it, it was actually after going on the three drug combination that um, I really started to notice quite significant gains. What are the three drugs? The three drugs that are being used, or shall I say have been used in South Africa and are being used here now, uh, are aspirin and clopidogrel, which uh, block two different receptors on the platelets. Because the platelets are crazy. Uh, They are huge. uh, They are very, very activated. And they stimulate a lot of clot formation. And the other drug is one that addresses other parts of the clotting pathway different from the platelets. It can be heparin or it can be one of the oral anticoagulants such as apixaban or dabigatran. No, the South African cohort's quite small though, right? The number of patients that have received this treatment. Uh, yes, it is small. Less than 20. It is small. And I must say here that you know anticoagulation is not something anybody should self-medicate with. Uh, it is something that has to be used under the supervision of an experienced clinician and you do need monitoring. But there is now a biomarker. We have the microclots. They can be seen. And certainly in Professor Pretorius's group, universally, the microclots were found. And in Mulheim last week, uh, she studied the blood of some patients. And she has tweeted, and you might have seen this, that uh, that the microclots and hyperactivated platelets were found in the blood. Obviously, I can't reveal much detail because it is still all being analysed, but yes, the clots were found. Did she analyse the blood of those who had been through 12 cycles of health apheresis? So she did, actually, yes. Uh, And again, I can't comment further, but what I can say is that in my blood, there was very little evidence of clot or platelet activation. So clearly, something has changed. But I imagine, as you say, that you've improved about 20%. Oh, no, no, not at all. No. More than that. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yes. If I had to put a percentage on it, and one has to be careful because, you know, one day is different from the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would say if I had to put a number, 50, 60%. Improvement. I have improved. And, and that was way more than I ever, uh, ever thought was going to be possible, uh, considering how ill I was. So I'm continuing with the anticoagulation. Hopefully I don't need any further apheresis. And then after that, it's good old-fashioned resting, pacing, good diet, rest. And I can't talk enough about the benefits of resting and pacing because, you know, some people, particularly, you know, those who haven't been ill for over a year, like perhaps we have been, but those who've had it for a few months, it has been seen that some people do recover spontaneously. Kurt, do you have any idea how that happens? If we have microclots, if we go with this theory that we have microclots, how do those people that recover, how have they ridded themselves of the microclots? So the clots are very difficult to break down um, in, in, in the lab, but the body's tendency will always be to try and get rid of them. If you rest, you have a good diet, you pace, and you don't cause further aggravation to your sympathetic nervous system and you don't cause further inflammation, then the body's natural processes have a good chance of breaking the clots down. Now, that's not to say that if that doesn't happen, that's your fault, because 
I did that and I still wasn't getting better. But I think that is the explanation for why some people do seem to recover. And obviously, you know, what you see underneath a microscope is one thing, but what really matters is how people feel, which is why last week in Mulheim, I organized some clinical observations. So I wouldn't call this a trial, obviously, because, you know, these are patients that Dr. Gaida has already been treating or was going to treat with this method anyway. But we measured things like cognition and walking speed and autonomic nervous system function, lung function before and after the first cycle of apheresis. And we have seen some very, very interesting signals. I can't divulge more. And these patients have now gone on to have anticoagulation as per Dr. Yeager's current practice. And they will be returning for these clinical observations the week of the 13th of December. And it will be very interesting to see what further changes there are in those objective markers, because you need data to convince people that a treatment is working. And we hope that with the lab data and with the clinical data of how patients are actually doing, that will persuade clinicians to consider anticoagulation more strongly, or at the very least, other researchers to do bigger studies should they be thought to be necessary. What I would say is that the key thing here is every attempt must be made to prove the clots at this moment in time until this treatment becomes more established. And it can be done. Professor Pretorius mentioned in her discussion with you that um, the fluorescent microscope is a mainly a research tool in universities, but it is available. And I am in the process of engaging with some NHS policymakers to see if there's a way of using the fluorescence microscope for clinical purposes. The method is very well described in the Pretorius papers, and it is not difficult. And the dye that's used is very cheap. And now we have a group in South Africa and a group in Germany of long holders where the clots have been shown. People in other parts of the world just need to get on with it because people are not going to get better if they've been suffering for months and months and months. This is not going to get better on its own. So I, I do think that there has to be a bit more movement now. I'm pleased that there is an interest among the patient community uh, in this because patient engagement and, and patient voice is what is going to turn the direction away from harmful therapies such as exercise and away from talking therapies which they're offered as treatment when actually all they should be offered as is ways of dealing with your difficulties around the illness. I mean, we're not even getting assessed for POTS or MCATs in long COVID services. I know some are very good, but some just are not fit for purpose. I think there's a lot of work to be done, but we, we now have some very effective treatments. At the very least, energies now need to be focused on looking for these clots, because it isn't just me who's got better. There are lots of people who are getting better. And we will publish our data from last week, and we will do it as soon as possible. But what is worth remembering is that the people who ran the clinical studies, the majority of them were long haulers. And we did it whilst we were ill, because we believe that this, this is effective. And because we know that people are desperate. And that's the only way that change is happening actually relatively fast in this illness is and and Noreen refers to this all all the time is the fact that you have clinicians who have the lived experience 
or the fact that the people who are trying to change policy have the lived experience of it. Yes. It really does highlight in this case, without the lived experience, how lacking in knowledge we are. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there is nothing like having been on this side. And I've been on this side a few times. I have been a patient before as well. And you see where the gaps in knowledge are. Uh, and you see the discomfort, and you see the lack of humility. And you see how difficult it must have been for all of the MACFS patients over the years. Yes, 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 absolutely, absolutely. And that jump from normal test to this must be psychological, we have to stop that. That is lazy medicine. Just because your usual battery of tests is negative does not mean that you can automatically diagnose somebody with a psychological illness. You know, people can be very sick with normal tests. It just means that you have to keep looking harder and believe your patient. And there is no excuse now for saying that ME-CFS or fibromyalgia or POTS or Lyme or long COVID, which is very topical, that these are psychological. Nobody chooses to go to bed for years. There is no incentive whatsoever. Uh, there's... People talk about, you know, benefits, etc. I mean, we know what the benefit systems is like. We know how hard it is to apply for PIP. And, you know, what do you actually get? It's There is no secondary gain whatsoever. People are just sick. People have said to me, but it must be that you slightly wanted, you know, you, you want to have that break. And you, no, I don't. I want to be able to live my life. I do not want to have these days where I don't know whether I'm going to be able to get up or not. And I Absolutely. find it massively offensive when people suggest that, there's something yes. psychological that you've decided that you don't want to. And oh, it's a funny coincidence, isn't it? Like millions of people all over the world, all at once, had the same idea. And especially when you look at the people that it's affected, most of the people seem yeah. to have been quite hard living people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And maybe it was our lifestyles. Maybe it was that kind of go-go that, that contributed. We don't know. But anecdotally, there does seem to be a bit of a, an association. I mean, the moment I could, I got out of bed. The moment I could... This is why we crash, because we push ourselves, because we want to do stuff. Uh, And, you know, I come on here for half an hour, an hour, and all people see is this person who can speak and can talk science. What they don't see is the preparation and the aftermath. And that's the same with us. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, credit to you for doing that. But it's because we know that more needs to happen and more can be done that we keep, keep saying this. I was I actually just wanted to drill down a little bit more on the on the clots because sure. you know people are desperate and people will yeah. grasp at any kind of science that's out there. Do you feel like everyone who's got long COVID has got these microclots? So I wouldn't say everyone because clearly there are some people who became ill. They got myocarditis, for example. They got involvement of one part of the body, and then that improved and that got better, and, and you know they are now back at what was the previous level of functioning without symptoms. So I think it would be hard to argue that those people have those, although did they have them at the time, who knows. But people like us, where we've got, you know, this feeling that our tissues are being starved of oxygen and nutrients, this is almost certainly the microclots in all of us, I would say. And if people, you know, clinicians, policymakers, researchers find that hard to believe, then they need to go on and look for them and see if they find them or not. I think that's what needs to happen. And I do feel like, you know, there is now such an interest in this area that the pressure will build. And what I'm really, really glad about now is that more and more patients are coming forward and saying that they did decline harmful therapies. 
and that they did bring the clots to the attention of their clinicians. So we're not going to go away. You know, if they want to do more research and more trials on the basis of what we find from our studies in Mulheim this this month, then you know that's great, that's fantastic. But what we want to offer is a proof of concept that there are these clots and that by properly addressing the clotting dysregulation, you can make people better. And yes, the help aphoresis does pun not intended help with the clot clearance. And the South African group treated people with just medication and, and they had some good results. I mean, I know that work hasn't been published yet, but Professor Pretorius did allude to that. So it may be that, you know, we're looking at a future where once the, the evidence is more understood and established, that people are offered just medication. And maybe that some people do need some aphoresis. Uh, but that would be great if we could treat people with just medication. Because what people have got to remember, and this is what clinicians forget, is that, yes, if you give a combination of three drugs that affect clotting and platelet function to a normal individual with normal clotting physiology, you are going to massively increase their risk of bleeding. There's no doubt about that. But all, all that uh, we're doing in people who have long COVID is addressing what we call their hypercoagulable state. So they are in a state of excessive clotting, of thrombosis. And the drugs and the aphoresis are trying to restore normal clotting physiology um, by breaking that cycle. And that, that is what they're trying to do. And it is sensible to start that treatment journey by proving that the patient has the clots and that can be done. And the technique has been out there since July. Do you have any idea how long you'd have to be on the medication for? I think every patient's going to be different. However, the experience from Professor Pretorius's clinical colleagues in South Africa was four to six weeks. If you think about it, that's not a very long time, considering that people get put onto anticoagulation lifelong following pulmonary emboli and deep venous thromboses. Four to six weeks is not a very long time. Now, it may be that some patients need longer, I don't know, but it, certainly looking at that group, it appears that most patients got a lot better with the short period. Obviously, it's um, something that needs to be administered very carefully and with the oversight of the correct doctor. But is it actually something that you can envisage the NHS would be able to afford to prescribe for long COVID patients? The three different drugs that you described used together, are they drugs that are affordable? Look at it this way. You're looking at drugs that need to be given for a short period and can get people a lot better potentially and back to function and back to working. That is priceless. Having said that, these drugs are already in use for other conditions. They are very commonly available drugs and they are not particularly expensive. You're not talking about chemotherapy or immunotherapy prices here. They're, they're average price drugs. So it's not inconceivable that it could be used on the NHS? I think it's once we have people looking for and finding the clots, that is a logical next step. I guess one of my major concerns, once again, is that the help aphoresis is not something that the majority yes. of people are going to be able to afford to do. Absolutely. Whether that, I mean, imagine even if that's... Uh, possibly rolled out as an option elsewhere. It's not going to be something that's open to a lot of people. And we're looking at over a million people in the UK yes. alone that have long COVID. 
we don't know how many of those have clotting as the mechanism of their long COVID. So any kind of strategy that is going to be designed needs to consider that, that it needs to be something that is accessible on the normal NHS with in the normal parameters. Yes, yes, absolutely. But microscopy and these drugs, they are already available. We do realise that we have to firm up the evidence a bit more. We did what we could being unwell um, here in Germany and hopefully the results will be interesting to people. It may even give uh, the big researchers an impetus to do larger trials and hopefully patients can enrol in them. But trials do take time to report. My hope would be that think clinicians will weigh up the risks and benefits with their patients, try and demonstrate the clots, and have those discussions about treatment. We have this kind of treatment paralysis in the NHS, which I've noticed, where if something isn't in a guideline, then we can't do it. That is not how medicine should be. Guidelines are okay for conditions where you've got lots and lots of evidence, but where you don't, then really you've got to step back a little bit and go, right, what actually is going on here? But to change that, you need to change the policy of the NHS, and that's not something that's going to be done easily. No, no, not easily. However, if you look at the percentage of drugs in primary care that actually have a solid evidence base, I think it's in the teens. It's not, right. it's not very high. So we are already using um, drugs um, off-label for a lot of conditions. I do accept that anticoagulants are another level, um, but I think we do need to move quickly on this with the clot detection and treatment. And what about in Germany? Are other clinics doing, or is Mulheim quite unique? So Mulheim is where they started treating long COVID patients, but there are other clinics as well. I'm not sure of the number, but I know of patients who are accessing other clinics for hepatitis for long COVID. And can we ask how much, How much? what's roughly, there are some figures being banded around on Twitter, between 10 and 20,000 euros. Is, are we in the right ballpark? Depends on how many cycles you need. So it's charged per cycle? Yeah, so 1,300 per cycle, euros. If you only need, obviously, one or two, then your cost, the cost is going to be very different from, if you're like me, where you've needed multiple. And how do they judge whether you need more? Do they check your blood to see if you have more microclots? Or... It's a clinical assessment. It, it, it's based on the patient's improvement. It's also based on the improvement in blood oxygen between cycles, also assessment of how much clot is coming out in the in the filters. So it's a judgment. When you do one cycle, for example, uh, how much of your blood does it clean? Does it clean all of your blood? Does it remove all the clots or is it... It's a good question. Without going down to microscopic level, I, I wouldn't be in a position to say does it remove all the clots in one go. That doesn't seem um, likely. However, um, what I can tell you is that the amount of blood filtered is between two and four litres per cycle, your normal blood volume being 5.5 litres. Initially, I struggled to have more than two two filtered because it was so thick, it kept clogging the machine and they had to stop. Whereas now, as I've got better and also as the triple anticoagulant therapy has had time to act, this morning, for example, I had four litres, no problem, no blockages. And you can notice a difference in your blood texture. Oh, absolutely. It's bright red. It was black before. And it flows easily, very easily. And the oxygen levels come up to 78. It was 32 before. But that's the combination of all the drugs and the apheresis. Yes, right? yes, yes, yes. That's really interesting. But certainly there has been certainly a, a marked, shall we say, exponential improvement 
um, in my condition since I started the treatment drug therapy. And that wasn't that long ago. That was only about three weeks ago. How many aphoresis treatments had you had prior to starting the anticoagulants? I had had uh, 10. And I was improving, but at a very slow rate. Whereas since then, it's been it's been pretty fast. Yeah. It probably would have been even better if I hadn't had the study last week, where obviously I, uh, you know, I was quite busy and I did have to push myself. Yeah, because you still need to keep on with the pacing and everything else alongside it. Absolutely, that doesn't go out of the window at all, and I don't think it ever should. I think the pacing, the diet, the resting, the breathwork, the meditation, those are things that they're not just treatments, they're life skills. I think it's really, really important that we do do bear those in mind. Why are we not all dropping dead of clots then, if this is continually clotting our blood? That was the same thing I asked myself. When I saw my oxygen levels and I saw my blood and I saw it was coming out, I thought, if I had actually... Um, done as I had been told to, which was push through and exercise and go back to work, then I think the outcome may would have been very different. Um, I think pretty sure that I would not be here now because the, the body can only take so much. The body is amazing and that's probably what we're still going. But I think we've kept each other informed and together in this. Uh, and people now know to rest and pace. And we have to do that despite being advised the opposite, which is, very challenging when you've got that power imbalance. Um, but uh, people do die. I mean, people are dying with complications of long COVID later on. People are committing suicide because they're so desperate, because it's awful. And then you think about what must have been happening to the ME people all over the years. You know, uh, We've had, what, one, two years of this, and there are people who've had 10, 20 years of this. It's unimaginable. Emily, what was your big takeaway from that interview? So fascinating. I think that this potential identification of, of microclots and the work of Professor Pretorius and various people and these people who are now undergoing their health apheresis, that could be crucial to our understanding of long COVID. But... But... <laughs> he says himself that he's felt considerably better since having that combination of three... Which may mean that if you do have microclots, you won't need to have the help aphoresis. Yeah, and I think that we probably had to go through this process to see those microclots coming out of people's blood. It, it is quite hopeful in the sense that if that is identified as one of the mechanisms, we could potentially get treated on the NHS using proven methods rather than having to undergo experimental treatment. But let's see. Let's see what happens when Professor Pretorius publishes the results of their findings from Mulheim last week. And also the uh, the findings of the doctor in South Africa who's treating patients with anticoagulants, because I think his paper's coming out as well soon. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, I know it's boring. Let's just bide our time before we all start reaching for the self-medication. And again, this this is a dangerous therapy. You need proper supervision. And if you don't have microclots, then you're in a bigger danger of having bleeds because... Because your blood is thinner already. Yes, yeah, exactly. So... So let's wait to see.
Join us next week as we hear others' experiences of long COVID. Share your stories and questions at tlcsessions.net. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram for the latest updates. And if you found this interesting, please do subscribe. Subscribe.